Brought to you by Leaving in the Ring, all boxing, no filter. Don't forget, we're, we're live every Monday night on YouTube and Blog Talk. Oh! That's another knockdown! He's not getting he up, he's not getting up, he's not getting up, he's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out! It's over! Mamma mia, he's done it! Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko! AJ does it in style! Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit! It's Fisgianato's Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, Fight Fans. It is Thursday, May 7th, and this is the Fisgianato's podcast on the Leaving in the Ring Radio Network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. We are brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com, a great destination to follow the sport of boxing. There's a couple great articles recently in the last week or so as well there. Um... Jumping right into the review section, there is obviously not a review section, but continuing in the theme of the last couple episodes, I'll be highlighting small businesses that need the help, and thanks to my guy Homer on Twitter, who pointed out the DC local restaurant TKO Burger, that is a boxing-themed restaurant and could use the shout-out. I obviously can't have uh, vouch for it personally, but I'm all about user engagement in any restaurant that is boxing-themed. Uh, and while we're on, I've been given a lot of sort of L.A. local places. While we're on the non-L.A. places, I'll give a shout-out to Rockaway Brewery, which is located in Long Island City. And for all those non-New Yorkers, that is in Queens, not Long Island, and is where I lived when I lived in New York City. It's the southwesternmost part of Queens, and Rockaway Brewery is probably one of the least fancy breweries that I've ever seen. I can highly recommend their ESB, English Special Bitter. It is awesome. It is also close to another place I went to all the time, a Casey-style barbecue place uh, called John Brown's Barbecue in Long Island City. If you live in the area, support these places. They were two of my most favorite places to go. Uh, you can kind of go to them and walk down the park that's right along the river, get a great view of the Manhattan skyline. But loved both of those places, went there all the time. And uh, if you live in New York and, and, and you can get out, I, I'm not even sure if most of the people who live there are still there or if they're there, how often they can get out. But go, go check these places out and support the, the small local businesses so important in this time. Okay, the other thing I wanted to say before getting into the deep dive, um, I'm, I'm proud of the sport of boxing and kind of how it's handled this. And as I'm watching other sports and sort of businesses in general try to deal with this crisis, like boxing has done pretty well. I mean, it's been careful, but not overcautious. And, you know, from talking with people, inside the sport, like there is a real plan of how to get started. And each 
different company and network and promoter has had a plan. Uh, and like, we've not seen this for the whole rest of the United States. Like there are very few places who are putting out effective plans for how to get back to work on, on both the government level and, and businesses that, you know, I think you're starting to see it now, now that we're like, geez, like two months into this whole thing, uh, of the quarantine, or at least we are in, in Los Angeles, but boxing's had a real plan where each network and promoter seem to be working together in a responsible way. There have been no layoffs. I know for sure at Top Rank and at PBC and at Matchroom, and I believe that to be true for Golden Boy as well. That, I mean, that's something you should really be proud of. You know, and to my understanding, no layoffs at UFC and Bellator either. So if you want to broaden it out to combat sports as a whole, I think that's really, really important. And, you know, just, again, like something that, that hasn't happened in a lot of other sports. A lot of other sports, there have been major layoffs or furloughs. Um, you know, DAZN has had a furlough. Um, and ESPN has had some reduction in salaries. You can see that. Uh, it. it it's pretty impressive that the promoters have not done that yet, at least the ones with network deals. So, you know, one thing I will say with DAZN, again, network, not a promoter. I've heard they may not be putting on fights until September. There are factions pushing them to go earlier. Um, and I'll get to this later. I mean, many of their yearly subs came from Canelo Jacobs which happened this past weekend, one year ago. And it doesn't make sense to me that they haven't offered any kind of extension. You know, I'd love to hear what the plan is moving forward. Like, to their credit, they have been one of the places that said that they do want to stage big events. All the other promoters have basically said they're, they're punting on that till much later in the year. And DAZN has, has really been trying to make those work on, on the sooner end of the scale. So to their credit, that's how they want to restart, and I get that. Uh, but I, I really think they should be restarting earlier. Anyways, let's go to the deep dive. This week, this episode, let's take a look at things that may change in boxing or you know, even greater in sports in general, but mostly just boxing, that are probably going to end up some of the changes that are happening, I think, some of them might be shorter term, but a lot of these changes, they're either going to be permanent or they're going to be generational in the way they happen. And, and I'll sort of go through the changes, and then I'll go through sort of what level of permanence they may have. Well, let's start with the big one. I think the biggest change that's going to happen is in fighter pay. I've mentioned this before in this podcast. It was already starting to happen before the coronavirus. I do think all promoters who've had exclusive deals with networks, they're going to use this as a reason to bring down fighter pay across the board. There are a ton of ramifications for this, a lot of important nuances. You know, part of this is totally legitimately due to like specifically the virus. Like it's just you know, you're losing this in gate from the virus, and, and there's, that's all you need to say. 
part of it, I will say, is accelerating something that was already in motion. I mentioned that up top. Really important point. When smart analysts talk about, you know, anything that happens in this economy, like the economy at large, not just the boxing world, what they'll say is in general, big events like this accelerate things that were already happening, and you're definitely seeing that here. Like, there's just no question about it. That's what you're seeing. And it's going to affect every level of fighter pay, not just stars. or This is every level. And, and you know, some of them might even be helpful to, to fighters. But let's go, let's start at the really high end. Like, I think the guarantees will, will start to come down. And it's funny because as I was writing my notes out for this, like a week or, you know, a week and a half ago, this was going to be my one of my major points. I mean, Bob Arum just flat out said it on Chris Mannix's last podcast, and and he's right about this. And it, it like that's coming. I've been a pretty major advocate for fighter pay myself, and I still just think I think this makes sense. I mean, even when I worked at HBO, the market for fighter guarantees on pay per view was nowhere near what it is right now. Like, remember, I and I've said this publicly, like. We thought that guaranteeing Floyd Mayweather $30 million per fight would probably sink Showtime. And now you're seeing Pacquiao's getting $20 million and the B-sides are getting 6 to $8 million. And most of these fights are basically doing half of the pay-per-view sale numbers that Floyd was doing. And they're not doing his gate numbers either. So it, it just doesn't make financial sense. I mean, some of this was due to the competition to sign big-time fighters, you know, but now we've got networks working together. There's economic uncertainty. And I mean, the good news is if you're an established pay-per-view star, you still will have some leverage to demand relatively high guarantees. But promoters, like I said, they've taken losses on some of these big pay-per-view fights. Aram said it too. I think, you know, he might be exaggerating, you know, that point. Uh, but he's right. Exaggeration or not. And maybe he's not, I, you know, I, I don't think they've necessarily taken huge losses in some of these, but they've taken losses. And I think this is going to encourage A-side fighters to seek out bigger fights. And it's going to protect promoters against fights that are too risky. Like, I, 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 you know, for DAZN, I'm not sure how much this affects them because they have their big stars signed to guarantee deals. But pretty much the overall equation is simple. Like, if you're at the highest level of the sport, you're going to take a hit on gate until we're fully back to normal, which is probably 12 to 18 months, and there will be a sliding scale on the gate with the closer we get to a working vaccine, probably the closer you get to making full gate. But while gate is significant, it's not your biggest revenue stream from a fight. It's probably worth your while to focus on pay-per-view or just license fee, which will still depend on how marketable of a fight you're in. So your income is going to be based more on how a fight performs at the box office if you're doing pay-per-view or, or the big-time zone fights that truly drive subs. That's really what it is for, for this. But this is, we're talking like less than eight fighters for this. You know, there's might be five fighters that we're talking about right here. It gets a lot more complicated when you get into the fighters who are on that pay-per-view B-side level. Or maybe pay-per-view if they're in the right fight, but otherwise they're a network star. And I think this is where we really see the market explode. And I think this is where we'll see a huge decrease in pay. And this is probably across the board. 
DAZN was already trying to do this for their biggest fights, and we did see some progress on this front. Like, BJ Saunders took a deal for several million dollars less than Kovalev or Jacob Scott. I mean, I think the days of eight or six million guarantees to pay-per-view B-sides are probably gone, much less those, like, $12 million guarantees for either pay-per-view or DAZN B-sides. Some of this was changing at places like Fox and ESPN, either by not making the fights that seemed natural to make, or just be, you know, because they lost money on some of the bigger fights. It's going to get a little easier now because this group of fighters, you know, they might have made 1.5 to 2 million, maybe even more than 2 million, by fighting on Big Fox or ESPN or ESPN Plus. Or if they were network free agents like Mikey Garcia, they'd go to the zone and make a ton more than that. Those guys aren't going to see $2 million fighting on non-pay-per-view TV anytime soon. So it's not just as simple as, I'll just go back and get my usual payday against an overmatched opponent on Big Fox or Showtime or ESPN if they don't like the pay-per-view B-side offer. You know, if it's three or four million bucks, they don't like the offer, they'll they'll go back. They'll probably still find they like that three or four million dollar pay-per-view B-side offer a lot more than the next option down because I think it's just going to be tough to get a million dollar network TV paydays. Bigger stars likely can get it or maybe a little bit more, but I think in general there won't be $2 million network TV paydays. And while there weren't a ton of those in the past, they did happen. And more recently they happened more frequently than you think. There's going to be less $1 to $1.5 million paydays on network TV, but they'll still exist. You know, and if you got used to fighting on TV for a million dollars, you should probably get used to changing that to five hundred to seven fifty, depending on who you're fighting. And we'll see less of those. And I think the key question with this group of fighters, like the network TV stars or the pay-per-view B-sides, is going to be, look, on a personal level, how much money have you saved? How long can you wait this out? Do you need to fight again for money? How ambitious are you in terms of of career accomplishments? Are you going to see opportunities to take advantage of while your peer group or your your pay scale peer group is potentially sitting out? And I think there are a decently sized group of fighters that they they actually might still be on contracts where they have a 1.5 or 2 or 3 million dollar minimum guaranteed pay for their fight. Maybe even higher in some cases. Even if you have that contractually guaranteed, and I'm saying this without seeing the contracts, I'm positive in almost all of them there is a force majeure clause in the contract. And the way this will play out in real life is that you won't get that payday fighting an overmatched opponent on Big Fox or ESPN or DAZN or Showtime. In order to get that money, you'll either have to take a pay-per-view level fight, whether it's on pay-per-view or not, or you just won't get it. And it doesn't matter that you have it in in your contract. You won't get it until the gate comes back. You'll need to be prepared to sit out for a while, maybe 18 months if you want that payday guaranteed, and a lot can change by the time you'll get back in the ring. An economist would probably say that these conditions should lead to more big fights happening. You know, but in boxing, the reality is these guys all have their own individual circumstances based on the questions I laid out. It may lead to some bigger fights, 
It may lead to, to some guys fighting less until the gates increase. It may lead to some of these guys sensing opportunities to move their careers along, position themselves for, for belts better, or for a belt better, or more, like I said, maybe multiple belts. It may lead to some of them fighting more often or taking bigger fights, even though the purses aren't what they quote-unquote normally be under normal circumstances. Because they're realizing that they're getting an opportunity to fight an opponent that they wouldn't have gotten to the opportunity to fight under normal circumstances. Now, on a macro level, I think we'll see some of all these different circumstances, and it will lead to some fights that we've all wanted to see. None of this is going to happen immediate, though. I mean, in the short term, we're likely to see a lot less of these bigger fights. A lot of these bigger fighters, they're going to want to wait it out and try to get at least some kind of minimal gate before they jump back in the ring, especially, you know, they're not going to realize right away that they're going to have to take part of the hit. But I, I do agree. Like, it shouldn't be the promoter bearing all the burden on this. Everyone's going to, because, you know, that's the way real life works. Everyone's going to have to take a little bit of a haircut here. As we go down the list, I think it gets less complicated. But it's going to have a lot more impact on the weekly in-and-out TV, you know, sort of boxing on TV that we're going to see. I mean, there's no question that big network TV fights and regular network TV fights they're both going to see the A side and B side taking pay cuts. Like I said above, like we've seen some of the bigger fights on network TV where, where both guys have made a million dollars or more. Um, and I think th those numbers are just going to come down. I think we'll still be able to budget fights where both guys are making 500000 That could lead to some really good TV fights but maybe not the first couple shows. I mean, with the grand majority of this, though, at least at least early on, first six months we're talking here, you know, maybe first even three months, a lot of these TV fights, the main events are going to be made for 500K total or under. And there are going to be opportunities. I mean, there's going to be a lot more paydays available for 50 to 75K per fighter in general that probably used to be double that. What does this mean for fighters? Well, if you're a prospect and, and you were just about to come into this part where you were going to make a lot more money, that, you, that, you got to delay that. That's going to take a lot longer before you see real money, unless you want to take a real fight. If you're a vet used to making a lot more than that, you may not like this at all, but you'll have no choice but to take the fights, you know, especially if you haven't saved your money. If you were used to those types of paydays, you know, 50 to 75K or whatever, you can probably fight a lot more often and take advantage of this new system, not feel bitter about it, and, and you might create some real opportunities for yourself down the line. I mean, so while this sounds like it's all over the map, remember that some of the more entertaining fights we've seen in the last six months before the pandemic were undercard fights that were evenly matched in this pay range already, or maybe just a little bit more. I mean, those kind of fighters will definitely get more opportunities because they already fit into this pay scale. And so they may look at this. This is their moment to shine. And I think the final question with fighter pay is when will we return to normalcy? Or is this the new normal? And this really depends on two major issues here. One being when do gates come back on a reasonable level? And the second being what is the competition between networks looking like when this is all over?
I mean, boxing gates at the highest level are some of the most lucrative gates that exist in anything. Even at the lower level, boxing has struggled to even come close to meaningful gates that other comparable sporting events get. You know, I would guess that this is the new normal, definitely until there's a vaccine, and likely even after that. I mean, one of the societal behavior changes that we should see going forward here is that most people, especially older, you know, more vulnerable people, they're going to go out less. And we'll get to the point, you know, we will get eventually get to the point where we don't have to wear a mask or anything like that. But, you know, we're not there. And in terms of the second part, the competition for fighters from, from networks that clearly drove up purses – I mean, if one or two of the networks drop out because of this, like, we're definitely at the new normal, and it's not changing for a while. Like, this is across all promoters and content providers. I mean, PBC, for all they've done to raise purses for fighters, they were looking to bring down costs just as, as like any other content provider. You know, I think we'll see a lot more promoters working together. Other people have said this, too especially on bigger fights, I think there's going to be a lot less animosity towards each other. That's generally good for the fans, but it's generally not great for the fighters, especially the ones that aren't at the top levels of stardom, because generally if you're working together, you're working together to make a really, really, really big fight, not an undercard on a Saturday night. The fighters relied on the competition for top talent to drive up the prices. I mean, we're just not going to be seeing the Tevin Farmers of the world making half a million bucks for a fight anymore just because he had a belt. Like He's the poster boy for this, but there's tons of other examples that everyone can point to. And what are the ramifications here? There's a lot. I mean, first of all, boxing promoters have some of the thinnest margins of any sports entities out there. And given the risks they have to take, I actually don't mind seeing certain prices go down for them. You know, I've talked about this before, but I think it would allow promoters to build out a more effective infrastructure, you know, in a way that makes their long-term success more viable and eventually grow the sport in a more sustainable way that will also lead to fighter pay increasing. And given that, I'm also a huge advocate for fighter pay, and I wish there was a better way for fighters and promoters, you know, to work together. And I mean, I think... You know, it's weird. It's like if you're going to make a comparison to politics in this, you know, this like boxing, if it was a political experiment, would basically be what happens if the libertarian party just rules the world. Like every single person in boxing is an independent contractor. There's very little infrastructure. There's no union or anything like that. Everyone has to look out for themselves first and foremost. And most other sporting leagues don't have anything like this in terms of their system. Most other professional sport, sporting leagues have unions, they have collective bargaining, they have a revenue share system, and boxing just doesn't have that. So the highest earners generate almost all the money. There's a really, really wealthy, tiny percentage at the top, almost no middle class to speak of, and there's no barrier to entry. What this means is if you're a professional fighter and the circumstances I just described are thrown at you, it'll mean that most of the people in your life are taking pay cuts. So even if you were a fighter that got used to making, you know, a couple hundred grand or a million bucks per fight, your trainer, your manager, your lawyer, if you have one, they're taking pay cuts, sparring partners. 
cuts. They might have to take pay cuts. And while you're still earning a lot of money no matter what, it's still tough for you to take a pay cut. It's really tough for them to take that pay cut. For that group of people, it might go from you have a you, you can earn your money just being a boxing manager or a boxing trainer to you can no longer earn enough money doing that. I mean, gyms might have to restructure their entire system if the professional fighters, you know, don't make as much money. Like the, the fighters will either need to fight more or, you know, gyms might just have to like start joining together or something. I don't even know. I mean, there could be permanent changes because the independent contractor world is, I mean, it's full of people who have different decision-making processes. I mean, there's certainly room for innovation here, increased fiscal professionalism, certainly in this world. Um, you know, but if you're a manager, you have a gym with professional fighters, if you're truly a blue-collar fighter who needs to do sparring work in addition to taking fights to make a living, like, this is going to affect your daily life. It's going to affect your pay going forward probably in a negative way. And you're going to have to come up with innovative ways to recapture that income, especially if it goes beyond that 12- to 18-month period that it's going to take for gates to come back. And they might not come back to the, you know, to the level that they were at. I mean, look, in general for this, and I've referenced Aram's comments before on, on Chris Maddox's last podcast, like all purses, especially the higher guarantees, they're going to come down. At the highest level, even for A-sides, you know, payday still might be really high, but the guarantees are going to come down. And based on what we're about to see for week-in, week-out boxing, I mean, if fighters want to earn seven-figure paydays, they're going to either have to fight on pay-per-view or fight a really high-level opponent on regular network TV. So for what is a pretty long list of fighters that are accustomed to making close to or over a million dollars per fight, they're either going to have to sit out until the gate comes back or accept the terms I've described above. Even when the crowds come back, it's likely going to take time to, you know, to ratchet everything back up. I mean, promoters aren't going to raise paydays until they're sure that networks, first of all, aren't lowering their deals from force majeure. They can start, you know, promoters need to make sure they can really start getting people into the gates and paying full price again. And that could be well over 18 months. There is hope that places like Las Vegas will innovate to get crowds back in earlier and, you know, do it in safer ways simply because the city's future depends on it. It's not just a sport here. It's like an entire city's, you know, economic future. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to see some of these pay-per-view level fights happening in the fall because, you know, there's a company like the MGM or whatever has figured out, you know, ways to do it safely. But it's all still unsure. It really is. Pay-per-view boxing is another thing. Right, this could literally be its own episode here. I mean, the obvious thing I've mentioned above here is that, you know, maybe you can do the smaller pay-per-views, like the two hundred fifty to 400,000 pay-per-view buy-level shows where the gate is going to be like under $5 million, especially if it's under $3 million. Like, you can do those with limited crowds, Maybe not no crowds. You probably want to make sure you got something 
but you can probably do those, but you're just not going to see Wilder Fury 3, Fury Wilder 3, whatever you want to call it, with the $17 million game. Like, how does a price reduction in pay-per-view for the people at home factor into all this? This has now been talked about publicly, but, you know, there's a certain number of people per pay-per-view purchase that you could depend on, and you would have to expect that number to go down in the new normal. So I do think there are a number of people who were throwing pay-per-view parties or families who were getting together, and now they're going to watch them individually. I do think there is room to lower the pay-per-view price. This may lead to pay-per-view prices truly coming down. Maybe this is just one or two experiments, and then we're just kind of waiting to see what happens. Maybe this leads to a system where there's sort of two tiers of pay-per-view, where one is you're paying the old price for the big-time event, and one is you're paying sort of a new price, probably, in my opinion, in the $50 range. The layer that hasn't been talked about is who's going to be the next big pay-per-view star? And how do they emerge? Because that's looking at this word at sort of a much more macro level. And if you look at it this way, like if I was a promoter or a network, I would, I would actually really be looking at it this way. Like if there's a fighter who could possibly emerge from the next 12 months as a pay-per-view star, I'd push a lot of resources towards making that a happen. I mean, I talked about the challenges that the zone will be facing and the ramifications like, they're really striking here because the reality for the pay-per-view industry is that the top pay-per-view star right now, right this second, it might be Tyson Fury because he won the last big pay-per-view fight that happened. But he doesn't have a history on it. So maybe it's Manny Pacquiao because he's still the biggest star in a weight class where he can do, you know, he has a number of different opponents to fight. Maybe it's Errol Spence, because he's performed well now, two pay-per-views in a row, or at least well for starting out. And he has a long list of opponents at PBC as well, one of them obviously being Pacquiao. And he has the really big one in Crawford that could vault him to the top. But he also isn't as big of a seller as Manny Pacquiao. There are a number of fighters in and around that 135 weight class that could emerge from a series of smaller pay-per-views. Javante Davis, Lomachenko, Tiafimo, Lopez. If, if one of those guys comes out and wins a series of fights just because there's so many, just so much talent around that weight class, you know, and there's opportunities to move up from weight, like, that's something I don't think that'll happen, but you got to mention it. Look, the biggest pay-per-view star could be if DAZN does have a lot of these issues, the biggest pay-per-view star could be Canelo Alvarez. If DAZN leaves boxing, Canelo certainly is going to be fighting on pay-per-view when he comes back. Could be Floyd Mayweather. If he comes out of retirement for another fight or two. You know, when you look at this on a macro level, in my opinion, there should be a mad dash for this real estate because there isn't much room. And right now, with Floyd retired and Canelo on the zone and Manny close to retirement, if I'm anyone else on this list, like I'm making the fights happen as quickly as possible. I'm not waiting. I'll take a hit early on, on 
on the gate in order to make the bigger fights happen, especially if you're going to get more attention on TV, to get to that point where you where you can become a star. Like the star, not a star, the star. You know, I'm going in for the big fights. If Fury beats Wilder and AJ, he's the biggest star in the world. If Spence beats Danny Garcia and then Crawford, God, he, you know, you can make a really strong argument for him. And you can go on and on with the other guys. Who emerges? What if Lomachenko beats all these guys at 135 or 130? You know, I don't think he'd ever become the biggest pay-per-view star, but what if Gervonta Davis beats Leo and then beats Loma? He'd be a pretty big star if he did that. You know, I'd look at this if that's the macro of pay-per-view. If it, in terms of what I think will happen, I'd look at this in a few different ways and sort of different waves as well. And first would be what happens directly after we come back and fighters have been given the opportunity to put in a full training camp. And so now we're talking at the earliest, like September or October, something like that, where you can have time to announce a pay-per-view fight, probably one of these smaller level ones. I think today Mike Coppinger reported that the Tank Davis-Leo Santa Cruz fight was happening. I'm pretty sure Spence and Danny Garcia is going to happen this fall. Aram's been pretty public about Lomachenko-Lopez. They want to do it with a crowd, but they'll do it this year if they have to either way. You know, if you're PBC or top rank, you probably want to line up one of these, potentially pricing it in the $50 to $60 range as an experiment. I know Aram publicly mentioned $40. Um, I personally think $50 makes the most sense. And I think there would be significantly more pay-per-view purchases at that price point. I'm not sure how many more purchases there would be if you lowered it to 40 from 50. Um, but I also think there's room for incentives. I mean, that Tecate pay-per-view rebate type of deal, that's just sitting out there for a sponsor to take advantage of. I would also expect cable and satellite companies to offer incentives uh, if they were smart. You know, this would sort of be phase one. And this would allow you to gauge a few different important metrics. You know, first, what's the appetite for big fights for the hardcore fan? Especially, look, I mean, let's be honest about this. Especially after you you get to see what's happening on the regular TV fights that at first I'm sure you're going to be psyched to see. But then when you see the quality of those, especially with the pay, the fighter paid situation I've described above, you know, early on, it may not be pretty. So you you may want pay-per-view to be back in your life, especially if it's going to be at a lower price, just because you want to see these bigger fights. Phase two would be what happens next, sort of in the later fall, in the winter. And a lot depends on how big the crowds are going to be allowed to be in places like Vegas or Texas, because there's probably not going to be crowds in California or New York at that point. Like I mentioned earlier, I think there is room for optimism, but there's no guarantee that it can be safely done. I mean, at least you can get some money from the gate at that point. You know, the next series of questions is like, what are other big sports doing? 
can you work with their schedules and find the right dates to make the bigger pay-per-views work? You're also hoping the economy has had a big-time recovery, unemployment has come way down to the point where boxing audiences can afford to buy pay-per-views regularly. I mean, I just I have a feeling there will be more pay-per-views than, you know, the, starting late fall in the winter, there's going to be a big run of them. And it's probably, there's probably going to be a lot in 2021. You know, from there, we'll go to a phase three. What is this the new normal? And if it is, what does it look like? You know, is DAZN going to pull out and Canelo going to come back to claim two more pay-per-view dates? Is DAZN going to, you know, just fully take on, are they, are they going to double down and fully take on the pay-per-view system? Can these other guys break through? Like, what does regular TV boxing look like with the reduced purchase, you know, purses? I don't think anyone has all the answers here for that. I'm not going to really make, I'm not going to bother making that big of a prediction here until we get some more info on the first couple phases of this that I've described. It's an unstable market, to say the least. And I think in general, we'll see bigger fights, but they'll be on pay-per-view, hopefully at lower prices that we've paid the last couple of years. But what I laid out here is what I think should happen and isn't necessarily going to be what happens. I don't know if that's good news or bad news. All right, crowds, gates, ticket prices, site fees, everything that comes with attending a live boxing event. You know, I talked about this a little bit with regards to fight or fail. A lot of this stuff is connected. And I think the major assumption here is that no one really knows the best way to do this, but everyone's going to try. Like I said above, smaller shows, club shows, anything that relies on a gate to make ends meet, which is really the two furthest ends of the spectrum for boxing. I mean, it's the biggest pay-per-views that need the gate, and then it's the smallest shows that don't really have good TV money. These are going to be, like, these two places are really going to be affected. And, it, like, if we're talking August or September, there might actually be parts of the country that allow crowds and give it a go. I am not optimistic about that. I mean, I would say if we're talking several thousand people in an indoor stadium, like, maybe we'll see that in 2020. I don't think it'll work. But it might, I mean, look, I'm not a medical expert on this, but I've kept pretty close tabs on what's happening. And I've also had fairly good access to people who are in the know. Um, and I think a couple of the different factors here is, you know, first of all, there's a lot we don't know. And a vaccine might be not be the thing that makes people feel comfortable to get to stadiums. The best case scenario for a vaccine is that it totally guarantees that you won't get the, the virus. But there's other scenarios where that's just not the case, where it takes a lot longer than we thought. Maybe 18 months, maybe 24 months, maybe even longer. Maybe there's a scenario where the vaccine ends up being more like a flu shot and you're still fairly susceptible to getting different strains of this to come around each year. We just don't know yet. And we don't know a lot of the long-term effects either of the virus. Like, if they're really, really bad, you need the vaccine. If they're not really bad, it could turn out that a vaccine isn't necessary and herd immunity makes more sense to pursue as a community 
and herein lies the issue. Like, if we're just sort of doing what Sweden is doing right now and taking some basic precautions, but for the most part continuing with life as usual, herd immunity may be here before we think. And sadly, there's going to be some horrible death rates, especially among certain people of age ranges and all that kind of stuff. But like for everyone else, you could probably go to stadiums and movie theaters earlier than you think, and it's going to be okay. You know, if it turns out that we need to wait till a vaccine has been fully vetted all across the board, like I said, 12 to 18 months might even be optimistic. You know, I feel like Las Vegas, which relies heavily on tourism, or places like Texas, Texas and Florida where the commissions are a little bit looser, like you're going to be able to put on shows in 2020 that probably feel a decent bit like a pre-coronavirus show with a lot of people in attendance. You know, they've probably added screenings or masks or, you know, maybe it's actually really intense and you have to show that you either had the antibody or have passed the test, you know, within 24 or 48 hours before you can walk into, uh, you know, a stadium to take a seat. And in fact, I've talked to some people in the music industry who've shown me what seating charts look like for, for what shows that will happen in the next few months. And it's not pretty. I mean, it's like six people seated together in one row, and you have to buy the entire group of the six tickets together. And then there's no one for a few rows in front of you or behind you, and you're the only six people on your entire row. I mean, that system is just not designed for the long run. Like, it's just not. You're paying extremely premium prices to have no one around you and to go you have to go with a group of people. I don't know, what does this all mean? Like for the biggest events, like I still think there's a lot of scenarios where Las Vegas needs this and they might even be willing to show out big site fees and get people to come, you know, just because it's awesome to go to a big fight. You know, club shows probably just aren't going to happen. Or if they happen, it's going to happen in places where there's not hotspots for the virus and, Look, when we get up and running, like ticket prices for the stuff that you're typically seeing on Fox or ESPN week in and week out, they'll probably go down. Maybe not by that much, though. I mean, I do think at the end of the day, people are going to want to live their lives. You know, me personally, I have a nine-month-old daughter. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to any fight until I see better data on how younger children that young do with the virus. I mean, it's pretty clear once you're a few years older, when, you know, especially once you're like eight or nine or 10, like you have probably the best statistical chance of not having any issues at all with the virus. If this is me five years ago without kids, I'd be going to live fights as soon as you could and I'd not be worrying about it that much because I'm in pretty good health and look, it would suck to get this, but I'd want to go to fights. But given the range I just presented of legitimate thought process about this, and like the lack of info we still have, it's pretty hard to say what permanent changes will come to this. You know, I do think there will be a lot of experimentation state by state, and the in-stadium experience is going to start out significantly different from what it was pre-virus. But a lot is going to depend on the info we get from when this process starts to go back into stadiums. 
what I hope is if there are any permanent changes that come from this, I think it's going to be the way you purchase tickets. Hopefully that'll be more consumer friendly. And I think the experience will be cheaper. I do think the process of attending an event will become consistently more personally intrusive, though. Okay, smaller promoters who don't have network deals. This is one I think is really important. I've talked about it a bit in the past, but not a ton. You know, like fighter pay, this is an issue that wasn't trending well for smaller promoters, and now this crisis could put in motion a sequence of events that forces a lot of them out of boxing. I mean, I could probably do an entire deep dive on this singular issue. I'm not going to do that right now. But, you know, this really started with the era of exclusive network deals, like PBC with Showtime uh, and Fox and Top Rank with ESPN. You know, PBC with Showtime was really first, and Top Rank with ESPN. Those were really the first ones. Now it's PBC also with Fox. It's Matchroom and Golden Boy with DAZN. And I think there's always going to be sort of some kind of smaller level of boxing, um, there'll be room for smaller promoters. And traditionally, the model has always been for these smaller promoters. They'll take the second tier of prospects coming up, you know, some of the overlooked prospects, maybe guys who are vets but have lost a few fights, maybe local club fighters who draw good crowds and they win enough fights so they step up to a higher level. Maybe it's a lot of the talented fighters from Eastern Europe or parts of Asia or the world that wouldn't have a natural home in the United States. I mean, you know who we're talking about here. We're talking about at the higher end, the DeBellas, the main events, Tom Lawflers. You know, then there's all sorts of people in between. There's the Dimitri Salidas, the Star Boxings. You know, a lot of these promoters are really good at what they do. They just don't have the ability to scale because they don't have an exclusive network deal. And in the HBO era, HBO would pretty much ensure that all these promoters stayed afloat by giving them dates. And especially if one of their fighters became an attraction, they could really cash in. Like main events had this with Kovalev, developed with Sergio Martinez, among others, even DeGuardia with like Chris Algieri, Russell Peltz. Like, you know, there are all these, a lot of other these guys, like they had big fights. You know, sometimes HBO World Championship Boxing, sometimes pay-per-view. Right now, these promoters have to co-promote if they want to date on ESPN, DAZN, Fox, or Showtime. That difference alone has been a major turning point for them because they no longer get the date. Now, because of how much boxing has been on, you know, they still have had good financial years because there's lots of dates out there. Um, they won't get the entire date, but there are plenty of slots for them to get fights. If they still have veteran fighters with titles that were hot commodities, like they can get lucrative deals for them. And the market is, has changed. Like I said, pre-COVID, it started to change. Now, it's really changed. I mean, the margins are going to get really tough. A big factor here, too, there's no way to develop younger fighters because you just don't have your own dates. So what is coronavirus doing? Well, as I mentioned above, club fights, they basically stopped happening. Really tough to get you know, to develop your younger fighters or at least give your tier, you know, the tier two or tier three prospects who might be just as talented as the tier one prospects, like to give them enough fights that they can work their way into a mandatory or a title shot, like that can be tough now. 
second now coming out of this pandemic, like any televised date is going to have a backlog of fighters who are already with the promoters who have these exclusive deals. So good luck getting in on those. And to make matters worse, like the fighter pay market is depressed, as I described above, you know, in the high end, no more humongous deals for Kovalev to fight Canelo. But maybe just as important, like there's no man, there's no more of the solid six-figure B-side purses on DAZN that a lot of these guys were getting and cashing in on. You know, smaller promoters already faced a really tough road in the best of times. And now it's tough. I think some of them will survive. Like, look, if DeBella and Main Events, they have really strong infrastructures, and I hope they do survive. Um, but this is going to be tough. All right. Finally, boxing, distribution. This might be the most significant. Uh, and I've touched on how pay-per-view might factor in. Like, I think the biggest question here is, will a network drop out? You know, supposedly DAZN has had some pretty stable sub-numbers. But like I mentioned above, remember, we're a year from the biggest sub-game they had when Canelo fought Jacobs. Waiting till September, potentially? And that, to me, strikes me as a bad strategy. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they will be coming back in July. Maybe they will start giving extensions to some of the people who did do those yearly subs. Because if you do that for a bit, they're going to be much likely, much more likely to re-up once there's boxing back. But I don't want to make this just about the zone. I mean, probably within 12 to 18 months of coming back from the pandemic, we'll almost certainly see one distributor drop out of doing high-level boxing. You know, we'll definitely see some kind of commitment to the sport change from others, you know, maybe in good or bad ways. I mean, it's not going to be that long until we'll be halfway through the PBC-Fox deal. And the pandemic's going to cause changes there that will make, likely just make the deal harder to assess. Not necessarily in a good or bad way, but just harder to assess for a ton of reasons. In terms of permanent changes, you know, it's tough to say because there's so many variables. But if I had to say what the biggest external factor here, I'd say it's how successful are all these companies going to be in releasing their streaming services and what effect does that have on the traditional cable systems. If I had to predict right now, I'd say that in the short term, you know, we'll see cable systems coming out coming out of this doing pretty well. I mean, I know in general most people, you know, most analysts are like, oh, streaming services are crushing it right now. A lot of the streaming services haven't even come out yet. NBC is going to basically be releasing sort of a, you know, or NBC Universal, which is Comcast, is, is basically going to be releasing sort of a toothless one soon that they don't have a lot of the programming they wanted to have. I mean, obviously, HBO Max doesn't have live boxing anymore, but Viacom's going to release something soon, too. We don't know what's going to be on that. You know, right now, Netflix is crushing it, but this pandemic might actually be a problem for them. And for every other streaming service, all the production is shut down right now, which means that six to nine months from now, there could be a huge pause in content that's coming to these places. And it's going to be coming at a time when traditional cable and satellite companies are going to be just airing a ton of live sports. Huge events, probably. There's going to be a lot of companies that have bet their future on streaming services. 
And unless they're, you know, able to get the programming they need there or incorporate some kind of bundling system, you're seeing for as great a success as the, the Amazons and the Netflix are having right now, you're seeing the have-nots not do that well. And that's not good. I think the biggest question facing live sports is where do they live in the content ecosphere? And will the rights continue to go up in price? You know, once we're starting to see answers to that, we'll be able to extrapolate a lot more of what it means for boxing. I mean, that question alone is essentially a series of future deep dives that I'll be doing on this podcast. But it's a crazy question. I, you know, for the places where boxing is the top sport, you're, he you're, you're really heavy, heavily reliant on boxing like the zone and, and, and Showtime. I mean, Showtime's obviously relied on other things. It's risky. Where it's not the top sport, like Fox and ESPN. I mean, it's great. It's a great platform. But you're so reliant on other things that it brings up other question marks. And I think this, this distribution question is going to be a big one that comes down. And I think what does the pandemic mean for it? You know, you look at places like the NBA or NHL, their schedules are going to be, pro you know, baseball too. Their schedules aren't just going to be affected this year. It could, be, it could be two or three years where their schedules and important dates are affected. And that can affect boxing too. There's certain dates boxing has always had to avoid. The same thing with college sports. While we're on college sports... I should have did this an episode or two ago. Shout out to my brother, who I believe right now is the youngest men's college soccer head coach. Um, he was named a few weeks ago head coach at Stetson University in Florida. It's a really solid program. He is the new head coach there, and I'm really proud of him, and I'm hopeful that his team will do really well the ascent in his career. And on that note, I will end this episode with the hope that maybe not next episode, but the episode after, I will actually have a preview section to do. I've heard Top Rank may be going as early as June 6th or the 13th. I want to get boxing back on any level. And when it comes back, I want to see it on a higher level. And I do think that's attainable. I've laid out the challenges for that, but I do think that's attainable. I'm really optimistic. I think compared to team sports, you should be very optimistic. The one thing I will also say about the preview, it is Thursday night. I'm going to really enjoy watching the UFC fight this Saturday night, not just for the quality of fights that we're seeing, but for... This, and I said this last episode, this is a preview. Every single sport is going to have their eyes on this. Every single sport. To their credit, they're trying to be industry leaders, and I think they are coming up with a great system. And I think a lot of the media has, the MMA media specifically, has portrayed them as reckless. 
And I do not think they're being reckless right now. I think they're attempting to be leaders. You know, maybe, as, as some have reported, maybe, <laughs> maybe for financial reasons uh, due to their owners in my former place of employment, WME. But I think either way, the culture there is that they want to take the first step. They want to do what no one else is doing. And I credit the USC for doing that. Now, I hope they do it in a safe way. It does feel like they have some really good processes in place. And if they do it correctly, this is what sports like boxing and other individual sports are going to look at. They're going to learn a lot from it. And we're going to be able to do it all in a healthy, safe way. And I think the individual sports, as I've mentioned numerous times since this whole thing started, we really do have a good shot at seeing those really soon in a sustainable, healthy way. So I'm very excited for that. I will review that and the TV ratings that come from the undercard and the pay-per-view buys in the next episode in, in a review section. I'll still give small businesses a shout-out. If you have a small business in your area, please let me know. Reach out on email or Twitter. I will give them a shout-out if I can. Talk to you guys in two weeks. Get